Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up with me to the book of James. If you don't have one with you and would like to, um, there should be a black hardback underneath a chair around you. You're more than welcome to grab one of those. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that home uh, as a gift. Uh, We'd love to be able to do that for you. We're in the middle of a sermon series right now where we're going through the book of James, and we have three weeks left, so we're coming up toward the end. We're starting the last chapter of James uh, today. We've seen throughout the book, James is a book written by the brother of Jesus who is very concerned that Christians live out the things they claim to believe, that Christians are not just hearers, but that we're doers, that we don't just talk the talk, but that we walk the walk as well. Um, And so as we uh, come to our text this morning, James 5, we'll, we'll be looking at the first six verses. I have to add a disclaimer as we get started which is, I didn't write the Bible. <laughs> and I know that sounds weird, and, and, and seems like a weird thing for someone to say as a disclaimer, but you'd be surprised how many times I've gotten in trouble for just reading the Bible. Um, I've taught at high school and, and at colleges, and uh, I've had parents or, or students actually ask for me to be fired uh, for quoting Jesus. There are like some hippie teenager came in with these radical ideas, right? And I'm like, no, that was just a quote. That's his idea, right? That's not even, that's not me. So this is, I didn't write the Bible. And, and there's a few things we do here at First Colony Christian Church that we do intentionally. Um, one of them is we spend a lot of time going through books of the Bible. And, and one of the purposes and one of the benefits of this is that it forces us to sometimes talk about things we might not otherwise want to talk about. Um, I probably never would pick these six verses to talk about on a Sunday morning, and you'll see why very quickly here. Um, and uh, the, the other thing um, you'll notice about our, our service uh, as we kind of intentionally put together uh, an order of worship is you'll never hear me preach before the offering plate is passed, okay? And, and that's on purpose for a couple of reasons. One, just in case I have a bad sermon, we don't want giving to be down. Um, it's, it's rare, but it happens. Um, two, right? It's it's very easy, and there's always the temptation to preach towards giving, right? And so, um, every time I get up, I know it's already happened. So I don't need to try to convince you to to give to us. In fact, I was sitting here. I can be challenged on this if I'm wrong. I've been at the church here for almost eight years, and you're like, have you been out of high school for eight years? A little bit. Um, <laughs> And I've never, am I, if I'm correct, I don't think I've ever once asked the church for money. I don't think I've ever asked for tithes or offerings. Um, and that's not anything about myself or our organization. That is just about the quality of our congregation. that uh, have always outgived our needs. Um, the only time we've ever asked for money, and again, in my memory, has been when we're raising funds for somebody else or if we have a mission project or something like that going on. Um, and so we read here in James, what we'll get is we'll get a passage that's one of the most intense passages about wealth and, and one of the scariest, maybe meanest passages uh, in this Bible about rich people, Okay. And there's kind of this irony in even just reading these verses 
standing right here. Okay, we're in one of the wealthiest, safest, nicest cities in the world, Sugarland, Texas. We're within a mile of a house that's being sold right now for over seven million dollars. I put an offer down recently. Uh, it was rejected when I found out that the monthly mortgage was actually more than I make in a year. Uh, and I was like, wow, that's an interesting, that's an interesting fact. Um, so the irony here, right, is not lost on me. Um, but, but again, we're, we're just going where the scriptures take us. And so um, if you'll read with me, James 5, 1 through 6, uh, we'll, we'll see what the Lord has to say to us this morning. Um, the text reads like this. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. It's such a heartwarming text, right? You've laid up treasure in the last days. So um, as the, the passage gets started here, it's very clearly uh, a text about something bad that's going to happen to people who have lots of money and possessions. Um, we're pretty sure that James, the, the Christians he's writing to, um, are poor and being oppressed by rich people. James himself, uh, the brother of Jesus, grew up as a peasant in Galilee. Probably our best estimates are 95% of these people were peasants, day laborers, um, and were often oppressed by the poor. Um, so there is this big inequality in terms of wealth. It's funny how things change over the years, right? Um, you know, now everyone's balanced. There's not a handful of people that own most of the world's money. Um, and so, so we're pretty sure that James, when, when he's talking about the rich, is not actually talking to people in the congregation. That he's probably talking about outsiders here. And, and it's mainly an encouragement Two people who are being oppressed by wealthy people who are being beaten down, maybe taken advantage of, um, that one day God's going to balance out the scales. At the same time, though, it warns these communities of the dangers and, and temptations of wealth and possessions and, and what might actually be coming one's way if they find themselves um, in a certain position and, and with a certain attitude towards the wealth that they have uh, received and, and gotten. And so the picture here is that um, the rich are, are being called to recognize and realize that very quickly they're going to be, instead of celebrating and, and enjoying the stuff that they have, weeping and wailing um, as one would do at a funeral, right? They're going to be in a state of grief. They're going to find everything that they had poured their life, their time, their devotion, their hearts into ripped away from them. Um, God's going to come. There's going to be a day of judgment. Their treasures, their gold and silver will have corroded, um, decayed, rusted. Um, and it says that, that rust, that decaying, the fact that the gold and silver and their garments are all eaten up, it's going to do two things. Their, their own wealth, one will be evidence against them. It's going to testify against them. Um, the, the idea is you've got a courtroom, right? And I think maybe the picture here is literal. The fact that you've got garments sitting in a closet just being eaten away at by bugs 
is going to be like exhibit A in a courtroom, right? When you have other people in the world without clothes. He says, look, you rich people who have so much stuff that it's really just rotting there, right, in storage. That's going to come up one day, and it's not going to come up in your favor. And then he says, too, that that same wealth, the gold, the, the silver, the, the garments, the, the, the ones that are corroded, they're not only going to be evidence, they're not only going to testify about your guilt, but they're also going to be the punishment for your sin, for the way you've used your wealth. They are, he says, going to eat your flesh like fire. Um, this is, I mean, very, very intense imagery. Um, Notice here, God is not eating their flesh like fire, right? I mean, it's it's a natural consequence of their own relationship to their possessions, to their wealth, that when it's ripped away from them, they experience this process of death. They experience this um, sense of grief and and mourning. Um, And he continues, and and we get some reasons um, for why these rich people are set up for such a miserable future. He says in verse 4, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you've kept back by fraud, they're crying out against you. And so this is very common back then. Most people, again, are day laborers. Um, They don't own their own land or their houses. They live day to day. And there's really not much recourse one would take if you were hired for a day and weren't paid that day. Um, You really could only go talk to one of their rich friends, right, who probably wouldn't really care that much about your situation. And so this is probably a very common situation. Again, this is probably a real-life thing that James Christians are dealing with, um, not getting paid, uh, being very literally taken advantage of by the wealthy because they have no other options. Um, and he says, those wages, the, the ones that you're holding back, they're crying out against you. The, the cries of the harvesters have reached the, the ears of the Lord of hosts. Um, you see this kind of theme throughout Scripture that sin or evil almost has this personification of calling for God to make things right. Um, the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, the blood that's spilt, we're told, cries out to God. Um, the Israelites, when they're in Egypt as slaves, are crying out to God, and it reaches his ears, and he listens, and then God acts. He acts to make things right. So they've reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the, the Lord Almighty. Verse 5, you've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Um, so we're getting a fuller picture, right, of, of why these rich people are going to experience this kind of judgment. Um, one, they've explicitly oppressed the poor and the needy. Um, two, they have poured their treasures into this earth and this lifetime. They're living in luxury and in self-indulgence. Um, they are um, greedy, self-hoarding uh, possessions, um, James says, then you've, you've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Um, and so James is, is coming right out of the prophets here. If you were to go back and read some of the prophetic books like Amos and Micah and Isaiah, 
Um, You'll find lots of images like this. You'll find Isaiah saying things uh, almost word for word. Rich people weep and wail because all of the bad things you've done to the poor people around you are going to come back and cut you off with the legs. God is one day going to show up and things are going to change. In Amos, he actually calls a group of women in a very wealthy city cows. And the idea is the same as here. Um, At a farmhouse, you might take pigs or cows and feed them a whole lot. And that's usually a sign that they're about to die. They're about to get eaten, right? He says, this is the picture of what the wealthy are experiencing. They think, right, that they just have a free-for-all. It's like lubies. It's a free buffet. I'm enjoying whatever I want to get right now, right? But James is saying, look at it in a different perspective here. You're actually putting on more pounds to be slaughtered when God shows up and puts all things back to right, when he puts all balances in their right account. He says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Most think that the righteous person here is a, a singular, um, but it stands for the collective group of God's people. And, and perhaps literally, right, you've condemned, you've murdered um, by not paying them. These people are not eating, and some of them are probably dying. Um, he says they're not resisting you. Again, maybe in reference to Jesus' command to live a lifestyle of non-resistance, to not resist against evildoers, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. And also because poor people don't have the ability to resist by very nature of their status in society, in life. Um, and so we, we get a text like this with an extreme warning against the rich, and it's it's odd because of the wealth that is around us. Um, I was talking with someone this morning, and, and they were like, how fitting. We just got these nice big screens behind me, and now we're talking about you know, how we're using our money. And I'm like, it's okay, though. They don't work <laughs> this morning. <laughs> so we dodged a bullet there. Um, again, I think the, the purpose of this text, James is writing this to encourage these people who are poor and being oppressed. And there's also this sense of warning here. And, and I think if we were going to go around the room and ask um, ourselves, if we took a survey, and people have done this, uh, sociologists, um, do you think you are rich? Do you feel like you are wealthy? Most of us would say no. I would say no. Because I struggle to pay some bills. I have to crunch some numbers. Most of us in this room, if not all of us, have to do that. But in fact, right, if if you were to think historically, throughout history, we're some of the richest people who have ever lived. I mean, who have ever experienced life on this earth. Some of the safest, richest people with some of the coolest toys. Um, If you're to think globally, right? We're in the top 5% of the world. Um, It was a stat from 2013. I'm not sure how it holds up now, but it it was saying if you earn $25,000 in a year, you are in the top 2% of earners in the world. 
Now, I'm not, I'm Ikea poor, okay? But $25,000 to me is still like not a lot of money for a year. And, and that puts you in the elite category in the world. Um, and I think this is one of the things that makes wealth so dangerous. Um, it is by nature deceptive. Possessions are by nature deceptive. And, and so money in the scriptures is never seen inherently as a bad thing. Having wealth is never seen inherently as a bad thing. At times, it's very clear it's a blessing from God, something to be grateful for. Now, that can be taken to a, maybe too far of an extreme um, where we think God's sole purpose is just to make us rich so we can live in luxury and self-indulgence. Um, but, but money itself is not bad, it seems. But the love of money, we're told, is very much the root of all evil. Paul says, if you're going to avoid anything, avoid your heart and an inappropriate relationship between your heart and stuff, between your heart and scratch. The only thing Jesus ever compares to God in a battle one-on-one for your devotion is money. He says every human being at the end of the day has to choose who they're going to serve. God or the dollar bill. Money is, in the scriptures, not this kind of neutral thing that we just happen to do with whatever we want. It's something that competes for our devotion. It's something that competes for our um, enthusiasm. It's something that competes for our um, entire kind of lifestyle. And so money's dangerous, not because it's bad in itself, but because of our own hearts because we're so easily seduced by it. We so easily buy into the lies that that money sells us. And if we're honest with ourselves, again, we live in a culture that already sets us back at a disadvantage. Um, so, So this is one of the reasons why most of us would say, we don't feel like we're wealthy, right? We read a passage like this, and, and we instantly think of the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. I mean, he's making, you know, billions of dollars. And we're like, no, that's not, that's not me. That's who this is talking about. Um, one of the reasons is because from the moment you were born, professionals who spend their entire lives doing this, have been telling you every possible chance they get that you don't have enough. That you are incomplete. That you need more than you currently have. I mean, from the moment you learn language, this is the message being bombarded to us using the most advanced psychological tactics out there. I mean, if you were to talk to a, a marketer, I mean, they're smarter than psychiatrists and knowing how the human psyche functions. Um, in 2014, two big studies came out that said a conservative estimate is that every day the average American is exposed to 360 advertisements. And this is only speaking of TV, radio, internet, newspapers, and magazines. So not even like logos, like on a shirt or billboards or, you know, brand pictures. 360. 360 times a day, 
people are preying on your need to feel adequate, on your need to feel safe, on your need to feel secure. And the message is very clear and very consistent. Your life's not complete unless you have this. You're missing out. You're not safe. You're not secure. You're not enjoying life like you could be enjoying life. And so we sometimes get this sense that, you know, we're not, we're not wealthy. We're not rich. And, and we miss out on the fact that everyone in this room, right, is Bill Gates to somebody. To somebody in the world, right? Uh, I know most of the people in this room right now, and there's a pretty large scale economically of diversity. Um, in our congregation, first and second service, um, overall, I mean, we run the gamut from some maybe millionaires to people who write our paycheck to paycheck. Every single one of them, there are people in the world who would go, I can't imagine what it would be like to have that kind of money. I mean, everyone is Bill Gates to somebody by virtue of just being here this morning, by virtue of, of where you live and, and where you are. And, and money's dangerous. It sells us these lies. I think two lies in particular um, that, that wealth and, and possessions tell us um, that we buy into so easily are, um, firstly, that stuff or money having more of it, saving more of it, using more of it will protect us or provide a buffer for us from anxiety and fear. And what we actually know scientifically and experientially is that the opposite is true. On the street, I learned more money, more problems. Um, In academic journals, I learned that Actually, millionaires often describe themselves much more anxious and much more dissatisfied with their finances than people who make seventy, eighty thousand dollars a year. I mean, it, there's an inverse relationship to your feeling of discomfort financially to how much money you actually make. Um, you can play this out, I think, in a large variety of different scenarios. When I first started driving, my parents gave me a F-150 blue pickup truck. It was 18 years old. Uh, so, you know, it's right out of a museum and had two gas tanks, which I've never seen since then. And it broke down like every 75 miles, which was unique about it as well. Um, but I can tell you this about the F-150. I never once checked it for a ding or a nick. I never once parked it a mile away from a store. I never once worried that someone parked way too close to it. I would run that thing into a tree and then just keep on driving, right? Like nothing had happened. And then six years later, (laughs) someone's laughing because they know that that actually happened. Six years later, I start making a little bit more money and I go out and buy myself a brand new Mazda. And I can feel $4,000 disappearing as I drive it off the lot. And all of a sudden, I'm parking four miles away from the store. And every time I get in or out of it, I'm doing a circle, looking for nicks and scratches. 
and my anxiety level, my fear, my worry goes through the roof. Stuff actually has the opposite effect. The more stuff we have, the more money we have. We deceive ourselves into thinking that at a certain point, we'll be content and satisfied. But in actuality, from experience and then from looking at people who actually have more money than us, that's just not how it works. It's a lie that stuff sells to us to gain our devotion. The second big lie, I think, that that wealth sells us that we buy into too easily is that it gives us some protection and safety and security from the future. And so if we can buy the nicest house with the biggest fence and the nicest security system, if we can have the biggest Roth IRA account, if we can have the best savings and trust funds and, and everything set up just the way we need it to be, that we will be protected from any kind of storm or bump or blip in the screen in the future. And again, anyone who's lived for 18 to 25 years has seen that this is just frankly not true. The passage we read last week at the end of chapter 4, right, was all about, you don't even know what will happen the rest of today, much less what's going to come tomorrow. We're Houstonians, the greater Houston area, I mean, have you forgotten Enron? I haven't. Hundreds and hundreds of people that I knew, their entire futures disappeared. I mean, in like 30, 45 seconds. And they had done everything right. We just don't have that kind of control that we think we do. Now, the good news is we have an option. We can take away our devotion and obsession with money and stuff and, and give that to God. And, and we'll find that God and his gospel, his, his grace, his salvation, the good news, actually rescues us from the dangers of wealth, the dangers of a, a bad relationship with wealth and, and with possessions. Um, I mean, counters very specifically the lies that it, it tells. And so um, someone who is um, oriented with their relationship with God, with, with the gospel, realizes that the heart of the gospel, the heart of the story we tell as Christians, that we live as Christians, is the generosity that God shows is that God is a God of unending generosity from creation, from life itself, to then even after we've sinned and turned away, he continues to give and continues to pursue. He pours out and gives and lays down his entire life. I mean, the heart of who we are, how we've been created as Christians, is a generous God who does not hold back to enjoy the things that are rightfully his, but who gives them away for the benefit of others. And someone so steeped in that mindset, that worldview, will find that that identity as a status, as, as a child of God, that that actually serves as the buffer for them 
from anxiety and fear. Not possessions, not wealth, not a bank account. Right? That they, they can be wealthy and have stuff and be comfortable, or they can be poor. But, but their status, right, is not found in what people think about them or what's in their living room or whether they have a living room. It's found in the fact that they're accepted and loved and cared for by God. And, and their security and hope in the future is not in their bank account. It's not in the liquidity of their assets. It's in the fact that a generous and loving God has promised to take care of them. Even through the worst situations that one can imagine. Jesus said much of this before James did. He says, where your treasure is, there's your heart. And you've got to be careful where you put your treasure, because too many people put your treasure somewhere where it gets eaten and destroyed, and it's not going to stay with you. And there's going to come a day when that gold and that silver is not going to have anything to offer you anymore. But there's never going to come a day where God doesn't have anything to offer you, where he stops buffering you from fear, where he stops giving you hope and security in your future. We might say this, you know, the warning against using wealth incorrectly, whether oppressing poor people, um, whether just living in luxury and self-indulgence, the warning is, is perhaps an invitation to examine ourselves. What would it look like if Christians asked themselves, seriously asked themselves this question, how much is enough? Like how much money, how much stuff is enough for me, for my household, for my family? What are our needs? How much is enough? Because what normally happens is we get $5,000, $10,000, $20,000 more, and our expenses go up $5,000, $10,000, more. What would happen if, if we actually sat down and said, nope, this is what we need. And anything above this is free game. Might go towards something else other than us. And I think if, if you never have that conversation, you'll always find that the expenses go up with the income. And there's more to buy and there's more to take care of and there's more to fix. And in fact, in reality, for, for the average American, it's not even just that we increase our 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 spending with our income, it's that we actually outspend our income. I mean, that's the sad irony of some of the wealthiest people of our life. We're so insecure in what we have that we spend 125% of what we make. I mean, we buy stuff with money we don't have. Things that we probably don't need. Debt is an epidemic, a crisis. I would probably, as a pastor, go as far to say it's, it's probably a sin to live beyond your means. And, and if you really take the Bible seriously, it's probably just as dangerous to live at your means, to use 100% of your money on yourself. 
that you should be living below your means, whatever that means is. You should ask yourself, what's enough? And then what, what am I going to do with what's left over, with what's left? The devotion that money often requires of us, I think gives us an easy way to examine where our, our hearts truly lie, which is your wallet, your bank account. I mean, if you really want to know where your heart is, where your treasure is, that's all you have to look at. I mean, where, where, follow the paper trail. I think that's Jesus. Where's the money going? Right? Does the money say, yeah, you really care about God's kingdom and his purposes in the world? Or does the money say, eh, you really care a lot about yourself and your own protection and safety and comfort and luxury and indulgence? And this is not an invitation to judge other people. Um, because just because someone has a, a shiny car or a big house, right, if you're not seeing the balance sheet, you, you don't have a complete picture, right? Some of the most generous people I know have the biggest house. And you might drive by and go, what an arrogant rich person fat cow about to be slaughtered. And then if you actually were to look at the money they earn and the money they spend, you go, oh man, this is the most generous person I've ever met. And on the opposite end, some of the lowest earners that you might know might actually be the most selfish people when it comes to money. Might actually be the most self-indulgent. I think it's something that really only you can, or maybe you and your family can, tell. You open up your wallet, look at your bank account. Where your treasure is, Jesus says, that's where your heart is. And, and certain treasures are here for a moment and will betray us, will actually turn against us, might eat us like fire. And then other treasure will last for eternity. And so with a text like this, um, with a warning against um, wealthy people who do not use their money in a correct way, um, I think that the question has to be asked, you know, what, what are these truths, what should they produce in us? Where, where do we go from here? Um, you know, I don't think, I think guilt is an immature reaction. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think being upset that you were born in America or, you know, to well-to-do parents and got a good education and have a good job and have worked hard. I don't think, I think that's, that's a, that's a great reaction. I don't think throwing it all away irresponsibly is a great reaction. I don't think not being wise about it is a great reaction. I do think though, probably all of us have areas of improvement, ways to grow. Um, I think it's clear from the scriptures that the church, you and I as Christians are called to stand up and fight against poverty, called to stand up and fight against economic inequality and injustice wherever we might see it. And I think primarily the way we can do this is as witnesses. 
as, as an example of what it might look like, both personally, individually, and corporately as a community, for there to be a group of people living in an economic, kingdom-minded system. And I think um, a few things we'd have to do to, to be these type of witnesses is, number one, I think we'd have to grow in financial wisdom. We'd have to learn how to be better stewards of our money. Um, most people my age, late 20s, early 30s, are actually really bad with money. We grew up used to a lifestyle of our parents at their peak financially. And we graduated college and lived that lifestyle without the 20 years of climbing the social ladder and found ourselves in way over our heads and are slaves for the rest of our lives and don't know how to budget, don't know how to track money, don't know how to have accountability, set limits. We offered Chris and Jason Watson, led a financial peace university class here real recently, and, and um, we had people from the church attend. Lindsay and I were there, and, and people from the community came. And, and just, I mean, you could feel it, like people drowning, just gasping for some wisdom. Like some common sense about a budget. What can I do to get out of some debt? What can I do to, to just provide for my family from the mistakes I've made? Just because no one taught me. Or I just learned my lessons from the media. I try to copy my, my, my wealthy parents. And that's just not where I am, not where I was. So we've, we've got to be good stewards in order to be a good witness. I think number two, we've got to pursue contentment. We've got to try to be content. We've got to actively pursue that. If you're getting told, don't be content 360 times a day, you're going to have to tell yourself, I'm content 360 times a day. You're going to have to counteract that message somehow. You're going to have to get acquainted with all of the things you do have. You're going to have to be able to name and count all of the blessings God has given you. You're going to have to be someone who is consumed with gratitude. Who lives in a countercultural way. When everything says you need this in order for your life to be complete, you go, that's silly. My life's complete right now. I don't need that. Might be nice. Might have it one day. But I don't I don't need that. Or we're actually living at our limit right now. We've set the bar and we're there. That takes us above the bar and we don't need to and we're not going to do that. And then the third thing, and, and this is what I've found, is, is that often it's hard to understand the benefits and the reasons for certain commands in the Bible until you actually do them. That, that really some of the biggest blessings come from 
just obeying, even if you don't understand. Um, and, and maybe one of the best ways to learn about money and, and to learn about Jesus' purpose in giving you money and, and allowing you to be stewards of money and possessions is to just be generous, to give it away. Is, is to actually let go of it. The, the gospel doesn't call us to this boring, poor life. It actually calls us out of a mundane life where we collect stuff that will be sold at a garage sale after we die and into the most exciting and powerful and dramatic story the world's ever seen into a mission, into this grand narrative of God rescuing the cosmos and including you and I in our small ways. And so we set that bar, and then we have money to go and, and alongside and with the grace of God push back some darkness, stand up and fight against poverty and injustice. We, we give it away. We're generous. And sometimes I think maybe that's the only way we can actually learn how to be generous and why we should be generous. In fact, you know, usually the people that I've encountered who have experienced the most blessings and who have freedom from the money they have, no matter how much they earn, whether it's a whole lot or very little, or the people who just kind of give most of it away. They're the freest. They're the ones who are the most least successful, the the ones who are most least likely to fall into these traps, to fall into these dangers. And then the world around us watches us and they see people who who are good stewards. They see people who are content. They see people who have asked the questions, well, it's enough. And then from there they, they say, okay, how can we join the mission? How can we join the story? I think there's a reason superhero stories still captivate our hearts. Because hardwired deep down inside of us somewhere, we all dream of sacrificing ourselves and of taking risk for some story that's bigger than ourselves to save something, to be a part of something legendary. And a, a, a holistic, robust view of the gospel is not just that we're forgiven of our sins to just sit there and enjoy ourselves. It's that we're forgiven so that we can go out into the world and help continue to transform it the way we've been transformed. So wealth is, I think, properly seen, not not a curse, but an opportunity. Now, it might be a dangerous opportunity because of our hearts and how easily we can kind of deceive ourselves and how easily the world can kind of turn us into friends with it more than friends with God, as James was talking about earlier in chapter 4. 
But at the same time, Jesus says, right, to, to those who are given much, much is expected. And, and to those who can meet those expectations, there's a lot of fun to be had. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of blessings to experience. There's a lot of opportunities to be a part of something going on in the world that everybody has the opportunity to be a part of. But we have to be willing to ask the hard questions. We have to be willing to examine ourselves. We have to be willing to hypothetically entertain the fact that maybe this is a passage that should be warning us. We have to be willing to maybe say, hey, maybe all of us in some way can take a step of improvement here. And then to believe the promises of God that the commands we receive in the scriptures, the warnings that we get, are not there to stifle our life and our joy and our peace. They're there to increase our joy. They're there to increase our peace, to increase our freedom. They're there to, to, to show us the way to real treasure, treasure that will last, that will support us, a foundation that won't crumble underneath us. And so this morning, I, I, I pray that we would be able to ask those hard questions. Um, we would have family members or friends we could be accountable to, have discussions with, and that maybe we just have this deeper calling than we had before, that there's something going on in the world. And you and I can always play a bigger part in it. And, and that you'll you'll never regret going too far into it. There's never going to be a day where you look back and say, man, I spent too much money and time making the world a better place. You know what? In hindsight, that Xbox, it would have been more worth it. I think that there might be the opposite statements. And so we've, we've got to ask the questions and we've got to respond in obedience. And we do so grateful that the generosity God has given us allows us to be generous. And that even in our generosity, we receive more of God's goodness and God's grace. We receive life and freedom um, paradoxically. Um, in giving away our lives, we find our lives. In dying, we receive life. Through the cross, we receive resurrection. Um, this is the story that we're living in. This is the God that we serve, and this is the story that we are called to continue living in. Would you pray with me?